you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. We are going to sing that song at the end of the service, in case anyone wondered. We're going to read this morning from Isaiah 43, verse 1, through the end of 43, and then we're going to read the first five verses of chapter 44 as well, about the same length as the passages we've read in recent weeks. Without further ado, hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples, in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. Besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. And henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel, You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance, let us argue together, set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. 
But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessings now as we consider his word together. Let's pray. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be our hope right now. Show us our sin, but also show us our great Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you were not an American teenager during the 1990s, then you may not be familiar with the glorious time capsule cultural artifact known as the No Fear brand t-shirt. So, for those of you who were not blessed to live in that golden age of fashion, give you a crash course. No Fear t-shirts featured sayings like these. Fear is in the eye of the beholder. Don't let it be you. No fear. You'll never steal second with your foot on first. No fear. A life lived in fear is a life half lived. No fear. They all have this sort of carpe diem, seize the day, just do it sort of philosophy to them. But the question they never answered was this, why? Why should I live that way? Why can I have confidence to live that way? This reminds me of a blog post by Kevin DeYoung in early 2021 titled, Of Faith and Fear. DeYoung wrote in his conclusion, the exhortation to faith over fear is bound to land better on others when it rings forth as a word of hope instead of a word of shame. What's missing from the faith over fear mantra is a robust explanation of why we can have peace instead of panic. Let's be careful then that when we say faith over fear, we are making God's promises feel big more than we are making our fellow Christians feel small. Now we've all probably messed up in this area. Amen. Making a brother or sister in Christ feel small whether we meant to or not. But Israel messed up as well, quite dramatically. We're going to see that today. And while God's word to them included plenty of rebukes, he also included plenty of promises. Promises that were designed to make God feel big. So that's what we see today. We see God's great, big promises We see that they can drive out lesser fears. They can cast away our sins. They can even create a new Israel, a new people of God. So four snapshots today. The first one is this, no fear, no fear. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 43. God gives us reasons not to fear, lots of them. And he gives them to people who were living in fearful times. People headed to exile at some unspecified time. But God does not belittle those fearful circumstances. No, God simply magnifies his comfort and his promises to his people. Look at the first three verses. 
But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Beautiful words, whether you have uh, female voices echoing as you sing it or not. But in verses 1 through 7, I counted at least six reasons why God's people can have no fear in fearful times. Are you ready for six sub-points? Here we go. 1A, because He is the covenant Lord. If you look at verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord. You'll notice Lord is in all caps, but that first letter is bigger. This is what they call small caps. It's how Bible translators distinguish the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah from the word Adonai, the more common word for Lord. What does all that mean? Why does it matter? Well, Yahweh or Jehovah or Lord in small caps comes from Exodus 3, where God says His name is I am. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Tell Israel, I am sent me to you. This is God's covenant name, which is why I said He is the covenant Lord. This name is so holy that the Hebrews found interesting, creative ways to avoid saying it out loud. This name has history. This name has baggage, but in a good way. This is God still saying something like this. I am still the God who broke mighty Pharaoh and all of his gods to deliver you out of the house of slavery. I am still the God who remembers my promises, my covenants to my people. So don't fear. Why else should we not fear? One, I can't really do fingers here, can I? One B, because God created us. He created us and formed us, verse 1 says. He also made us, verse 7 says. All those words have a slightly different nuance. But bottom line, we are God's handiwork, according to Ephesians 2.10 and elsewhere. You see, we are not loved because we are the finest specimens ever created. No, sir. That's the kind of thinking that leads to eating disorders, idolatry of the body, even far out things like Aryan supremacy. No, we are not loved because we are the best of the best. We're loved because God made us, because we are his. Think for a moment of your prized possessions. Maybe it's your car, maybe it's brand new. Maybe it's a beat-up pickup truck. It's just barely hanging on. Maybe, maybe you're thinking of something else like your kid's artwork. Whatever your prized possessions are, do you love them because they're the best? Or do you love them because they're yours? We are God's. So He loves us. So do not fear. Why else should we not fear? 1C, because He redeemed us. Verse 1 says... He's not only the Holy One who has come near to us. He is not only our Savior. He is our Redeemer. We are valuable to God. He will let other kingdoms like Egypt, Cush, Seba, rise and fall for our sake. Didn't He already do that for Israel at this point in history? Why can't He do it again? As one author says, our debt became His. And we know what lengths God would go to to pay off our debt. So don't fear. 
Why else should we not fear? 1D, because he is present with us. He's present with us. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. With you. Waters, rivers, fire, whatever else you can imagine that's scary, he's with us. No matter whether you feel abandoned, as we talked about in Isaiah 40, even if you feel that way, don't trust your feelings. And I say don't take life advice from Star Wars movies. Don't get that reference, it's fine. But your feelings are how you feel. Doesn't mean they reflect reality. You might be lonely, that doesn't mean God has left you. You might be afraid, that doesn't mean the circumstances always merit fear. And what's more reliable than your feelings? How about the God who parted the Red Sea to rescue his people? The God who was with them when they passed through the waters, that ordeal of faith. God is with you, so don't fear. Why else should we not fear? One, E, because you are precious in God's sight. You're precious in his sight. Verse 1, it says at the end, I have called you by name, you are mine. Verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Now that's just the lead up to the other thing he's going to say, but it's pretty significant, isn't it? You are precious, you're honored and I love you. Because of all that, God gives valuable possessions for us. Verses 3 and 4 says, And that leads to this last reason not to fear. One F. Because the Lord promises to gather us. Promises to gather us. Look at verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. Reminds me when my dog has something he's not supposed to, to have. I look at him, I say, leave it. God saying, give me my people. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Israel would be scattered and exiled. They would lose their home. They would be homeless spiritually, literally. And 1 Peter 2.11 says, we are too. We are exiles and aliens in the midst of a hostile world. But God is saying, I will lead you home, bring you home. I will leave the 99 and come for you. Or like Nathaniel, played by Daniel Day-Lewis in The Last of the Mohicans, he will say, I will find you. No matter how far, no matter how long it takes, I will find you. If you don't know that movie, it's worth it for that scene. The soundtrack is great too. God has covenanted with us. He's created us. He's redeemed us. God is present with us. He thinks we are precious and he promises to gather us, to find us, to pursue us like the bloodhound of heaven. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, even pursue me all the days of my life. For God, fear not, is not a weapon to hurl at us. It's a prelude for him to tell us about himself how much he cares for us. Reminds me of an old quote from Robert Murray McShane, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. A modern author explained it like this, the excellency of Christ is both the brilliant contrast to the sin in our hearts and the remedy to the sin we find there. 
also the remedy to the consequences, the the circumstances around us. Whether you're an Israelite fearing an invasion and exile, whether you're an American who feels isolated and alone, God wants you not to be paralyzed by fear because he wants you to see how big and how loving he is. Is that statement supposed to solve all of your problems? Not, Not necessarily. It's not my goal. My goal is for this, seeing God and all of his ginormous goodness, for this to be your starting point, to freedom from fear, because God is bigger than our fears. After no fear, we also see this, no rivals, no rivals in verses 8 through 19. If God is going to make these grandiose promises, then don't you want to know that he is the best? that no one can compare to him, that he has no rivals. Verse 8 brings us back to God's courtroom. Isaiah does this a lot. God is going to prove his case. He is God. No one else is. Verses 8 and 9 are interesting. They might be saying that God's only witnesses that will testify him are the deaf and the blind. But, but even then, God is going to prevail because his people will testify to his faithfulness faithful both to discipline them with exile in Babylon and then faithful to bring them back home, both of which God predicted. He and only he predicted. Because God is superior. He has no rivals. Verses 10 through 15 show us this five different times. Five separate times God shows himself superior to the foreign gods and then he also identifies himself. That's the structure of these verses here. For example, verse 10, he says he's superior. No God was formed before or after me. God has always existed. He is self-existent. The point is there's no one like him. He's superior. And then he identifies himself. I am he, the only one like this. Verse 11, superiority. Besides me, there is no savior. The second half of the verse. Then you back up to the first half. His identity, I, I am the Lord. Again, only the God who promised to save, can back it up. Verse 12, his superiority. I declared, saved, proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you. The strange were foreign gods. They can't do this. They're false gods. They can't announce the future because they don't know the future. They don't control the future. Whereas, I am God. He says, I can do all that. Verse 13, at the second half, it's his superiority. None can deliver from my hand. No one can change what I do. Then the beginning, his identity. I am he. That's all he has to say. His reputation precedes himself. I am he. His superiority, it's a scene again in verses 14 and 15. He says he is going to make Babylon their future captors. He's going to make them into fugitives because he will raise up the Chaldeans, yet another kingdom, to drive them out. Who else can do this except the one who says... I am the Lord, your Holy One, your Creator, your King, your Redeemer. All of that is for God to say, I alone am God, I have no rivals. And you might think that's overkill, but you may not understand the tenacity of idols. They embed themselves into your soul like a tick, like a parasite. In fact, the problem isn't the idols themselves so much as it's us. Because we love idols. Oh, we love anything that'll whisper sweet nothings into our ear and promise us salvation from our latest crisis. 
John Calvin famously said, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. God is driving this point home for our good because he knows how much we love idols. But God loves you too much to let you settle for idols which will simply let you down because idols are nothing. Isaiah 41, 29. Idols were wood or stone carvings that supposedly had power to do something. They were and are, no matter what they're made of, things that people trust more than they trust God. Derek Thomas puts it this way, an idol is something or someone inflated to function as God. Blank will save me from my latest fear. What would you put in that blank? My money, my good looks, my smarts, my people skills or my manipulation, my position, my reputation, my plans, which I've spent a lot of time perfecting. Maybe it's my lack of plans, my flexibility, my freedom, my refusal to pin myself down and keep my options open. Maybe it's my favorite leader who said, I can trust him and no one else. Do any of those apply to you? Why do you think that is better than the God who has proved time and time again that he has no rivals, no competitors, no equals? Who could be better than this God who has covenanted with us, created us, and redeemed us? Who says he is present with us, that he thinks we're precious, and that he promises to gather us and find us? Who promises to outdo the exodus? Oh yes, he does that too. That's our next point. Point number three, new exodus. New exodus. You see this verses 16 to 28 in chapter 43. Besides the God of the Exodus, there is no Savior. He says so in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. When did God make this path in the sea, the mighty waters? Was it when he allowed Israel to pass through the Red Sea on dry ground? When God worked this miracle so that only he could get credit for their salvation? And as good as that was, God doesn't want them to live in the past. He wants them to live in light of the past. Barry Webb says it this way. The past can become an idealized world, the good old days, into which we retreat when the future becomes too frightening to face or... It can be a springboard from which we launch ourselves into the future with new strength. Verse 18, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The God of the Exodus is going to outdo himself with an encore. He'll make a new in better exodus, a new and better escape and salvation for the people of God. He will make a highway in the desert for his people to escape. Now the Red Sea has a maximum width today of about 190 miles. The path that Israel crossed was probably shorter, but still miraculous. The path from Babylon back to the promised land, depending on what route you took, was either was somewhere between 500 to 900 miles, a harsh journey on foot of at least four months. 
but God would lead Israel back. He would use an ungodly instrument named Cyrus to do it. King Cyrus will be mentioned in Isaiah 44 and 45, a few hundred years before he was ever born. A God who can do that is a God worth worshiping, one who demands my soul, my life, my all. Now speaking of worship, Israel didn't worship God as she should have. Yeah, things take a turn here. After verses 16 to 21, the good news of the new exodus, things take a turn. In verse 22, God says to Israel, this is what you haven't done. You haven't worshipped God. You haven't offered sacrifices, valuable treasures to show how much you value God. Instead, verse 24, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Verse 26, prove me wrong, God says. Verse 27, your first father sinned. Whether that's Adam or Jacob, the bottom line, they have a rotten heritage. And the implication is they're just as bad. So verse 28, they are delivered to destruction. A strong word implying future exile. Yet, at least one author says, as bad as this punishment is, the dominant note here is still deliverance. It's the new thing that God is doing. It's the hope that you see in verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. What's Israel done to deserve this? And that's just the point, isn't it? Because God delights to show his mercy to the undeserving. He does it, as he says here, for my own sake. He's going to forgive Israel. The God who has no rival. The God who has this habit of saying, I am he. That God will bring his unrivaled power to forgive the sins of his people. To carve a path in the desert to bring them to freedom. To bring them back home. This forgiveness of sins, it hints at what makes this new and better exodus better. Because the new and better exodus... It didn't ultimately happen under Cyrus. Now, I ran out of time to look up the stats on this, but fewer people returned from the exile than the ones who left Egypt in the original Exodus. Furthermore, if you read the prophet Haggai, one of the post-exilic prophets, so several years after Isaiah, before you get to the New Testament, if you look at, you look at Haggai, You'll see him talk about the second temple. In other words, the temple after the exile, the rebuilt one. And he'll say it was as nothing compared to the first one. In short, even after Israel returned from exile, they still needed a second exodus. And so isn't it good that Jesus saw his ministry as just that? If you look at Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Talking about the transfiguration, it says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure, or as the footnote says, his exodus. Only this time Jesus would not simply free his people from slavery. He would free them from slavery to sin, from all their sin and sorrow all the idols that ensnared them, all the sin that's so easily entangled. You see, God wants you to have freedom from much more than your enemies. He wants to free you from yourself, your fears, your faults, your sin.
don't you get the sense that nothing can stop him from doing that? Especially because as he says here, I will do it for my own sake. Nothing can stop him from doing this. Might remind you of Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The God who wants you to have no fear is the God who has no rivals and the God who promises a new exodus. He's also the God who promises, fourthly and finally, a new Israel. New Israel. You see this in chapter 44. The first two verses say, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun means upright. It was a term of affection. It was how God saw his people despite their actual condition. And again, if you back up in chapter 43, verses 22 to uh, 28, a lot of negative stuff there. But none of it can cancel the promises that God has already announced. So once you get to chapter 44, it's, it's like the bad stuff doesn't matter. God is repeating all the good stuff, all the reasons not to fear from early on in chapter 43. <clears throat> and then verse 3, more promises. Water in a dry land. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring. If the new exodus is a symbol of what Christ will do, freeing God's people from slavery to sin, then isn't this a hint of how God will do that, of how God will pour out the Holy Spirit upon his people at Pentecost and forever after to empower his people so that they might live for him, to gladly do all that, even in an age when God's people will endure persecution and in ridicule, to live for him despite all that. He'll give us power to do that. And then notice what verse 5 says. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Is that happening? Has that been fulfilled? Well, you may not call yourself an Israelite, In the relationship between Israel and the church is often misunderstood, so I'm going to plug this book one more time, The Israel of God by O. Palmer Robertson. Good book. You may not call yourself an Israelite, but have you ever sung these words gladly? O great our sins and sore our woes, His grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows, Our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd good and true is He who will at last his Israel free from all her sin or their sin and sorrow. All their sin and sorrow. I'm not interested this morning in a complex analysis of Israel's relationship to the church. What I am interested in is this. The God who saved Israel in spite of all her sin, in spite of all her fear. Because that God is the same God that we serve the same God who promises to love us and never let us go. Life is complex. Sometimes it's scary. The Bible's complex. Sometimes it's confusing. But amidst the trees of prophecy, never miss the forest, never miss the main point.
Your God has made promises to you. And He is too big, too mighty, too trustworthy, too good to ever let His people down. So if you get scared, if you get discouraged or even confused, then look to Christ. Take ten looks at Christ and don't look at anything else. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we behold the Holy One of Israel, not just today, but every day. May we know Him as holy and awesome, know You as holy and awesome, and also a God who is near, a God who is with us, a God who loves us and thinks we're precious. May we know You like that. It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.